Please be seated. Well, good morning. I'm Brandon Barrett, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant. And let me also welcome you if you're visiting. We're glad that you're with us this morning. And we are a couple weeks now into a series on the book of James. So if you'd like to be turning there, uh, if you happen to be using one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 1011, right after the book of Hebrews, right before 1 Peter. Uh, This morning we'll be looking at James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. Let me pray for us and we'll we'll jump right in. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning uh, and ask a remarkable thing. That you, the God of the universe, would lean close to us as you already do as we are here this morning in worship and in prayer in confession and thanksgiving. We ask that you lean close now, though, and speak to us through your word. This is your word to us. Enlighten our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. Would you do your good work in us? Go to work now, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. If any one of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. This is the word of the Lord, and it's given for our good and for His glory. So let's see what He's got here for us this morning. When I was growing up, I grew up in Tennessee, and at periodic times in my childhood, we went river rafting on the Ocoee River, which is in eastern Tennessee, and the Cherokee National Forest. So I can only imagine, maybe if folks are going on the summer missions trip, they're going up right near there. Maybe you'll go rafting. This might all be a big ruse just to go rafting on the Ocoee River. And if you've ever been rafting, you know there, there are a few basic things that you've got to know about rafting. So we show up there, and they give us some lessons about the river. And one of the first things we learned is that the, uh, the Ocoee River was fed by a dam, and it was, uh, they ran it on a schedule. So there were days you could go there, and it would just be this dry rock bed. And then, you know, you could, based on the clock, you could stand there and watch the, the water begin to rise. So obviously you need to know the schedule of the river if you're going to go uh, down the river. You, you need to know a few things about paddling. They'd give you some lessons when, you know, paddle on the right, paddle on the left, back paddle, the basic stuff. Uh, you knew there was good likelihood that you were going to get wet. You knew you were going to have to paddle hard. There's certain things you knew about the river. Okay, but so you get the basics, and then you go, get in a raft, and start floating down the river. And when you start floating down the river, you realize you, you actually you, you know a little bit about the river, but there are some actual rapids that you now have to navigate. Rapids on this river with names like Grumpy, Torpedo, Slingshot, Broken Nose, Diamond Splitter, and my favorite table saw. Uh, <clears throat> And you quickly start thinking, how are we going to how are we going to navigate these rapids going down the river? How are we going to actually survive this trip down the uh, down the Okoe? And you start to think, what am I going to need to actually survive? What are we going to need to survive uh, the trials of our lives? Okay, that's what James plunges us right back into. Last week when we looked at this and he opened this topic of, uh, of trials, we talked about the big picture of what God is doing in our trials, that he is somehow mysteriously working in us a real and genuine joy. 
that we can hardly imagine in the midst of our very trials. And we saw there that uh, he is about the purpose of, of working steadfastness into us, that he's working character in us, that he's using all of these things for our good. So big picture of trials. Here are a few things about the river. But now what James takes up in the passage this week is what are we going to do when we hit the actual rapids of life, when we hit the actual trials of life? Okay, it's good to know some of the basics. Here's what God is doing big picture. How in the world am I going to navigate this actual specific trial that I'm going through? Well, that's what James turns to uh, in these verses that we're looking at this morning. How are you going to navigate the trials of your life? How are you going to navigate the trials you can't even see yet? You know, those ones waiting around the bend further down the river. You don't even know what's coming. How are we going to face it? Well, James says this, and here's our passage. He says, the thing you need most, the thing you need most is wisdom. That's what you need. might not have been your first thought, but James tells us that's what we need. And so we're going to see what he has to tell us about wisdom this morning. Three things. We're going to see that we need it and where we find it and how we can get it, how we can appropriate it, how we can take it in. Okay, so wisdom. First, that we need it. Okay, we talked about rivers and we talked about rapids. Let me give you another example. Uh, I, get, I get to do uh, one of the parts of uh, being a pastor that I love, get to do a lot of weddings, and so I get to do a lot of premarital counseling, and a, and a lot of that Elizabeth and I do together, and um, we, we've both been on both sides of that, that counseling relationship, but we love doing this with couples that are thinking about getting married and are moving towards that end, and you talk about a lot of stuff in premarital counseling. You talk about what, what is God's what is the purpose for marriage? What does Scripture tell us about what God designed marriage to do and to be? We talk about the fact that marriage, if you get married, that is going to be one of the primary tools of sanctification that God uses in your life. The primary tools that God uses to actually make you holy. To actually bring up all the junk and start hammering out the dents. He's going to use it often through confrontation in your marriage. That's what he's, one of the things he's going to do in marriage. We talk about uh, families of origin, all the, the truckloads of baggage that you come to marriage with from, from your families that you don't even recognize yet. And We talk about communication skills and how you're going to work through problems. We talk about money, all those kinds of things. But then, then the couple actually gets married and they go off on honeymoon and they come back. And sooner or later, you know, the, the other penny, the penny's just going to drop on this whole marriage deal for them. Like, there you are. You're sharing a 600-square-foot apartment. You're on top of each other all the time. There's no place to run. You start to clash their disagreements. And there that person is. They won't go away because <laughs> you're married to them. And suddenly you have to start dealing with all the junk. And so you think back to all that premarital counseling. Okay, we talked about communication. We talked about this. We talked about the purpose of marriage. Then you start to think, well, how does that apply here? Okay, so here's my spouse is doing this. Is this one of those situations where I need to really just confront my spouse and say, look, look at what's going on. We have to talk about this. Or is this one of those situations where I need to just sit back for a while? I need to pray for them. I need to love them. I need to, I need to cover over offense. Which one is it? Well, it's going to take wisdom to find out, to figure it out. You know, you move to a new place and you're trying to, you're trying to pick a home church and one of you likes one church and one of you likes the other. Which one should you go to? It's going to take wisdom as you navigate this. Uh, it's going to take um, sticking to it to hammer out in this actual marriage now all these, general per- all these general principles. How do we put them to work in this given situation? And that's James's concern here, wisdom. 
Do we need a way in which we're actually going to navigate these trials? Now, as we read this, it's easy to think, perhaps, you know, that James is speaking about wisdom in these general terms. And, and, and he does bring up wisdom, and he talks about praying and faith, and he talks about doubt. But for James, right here, this is all in the context of what he began talking about in the first four verses, which is trials. Look back with me at verse 4. As it gets to the, the end of this statement on trials, he says this, Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Okay, in our trials, he wants us to be lacking in nothing. And then what's the first thing he says in verse 5? If any of you lacks wisdom. This is what James goes to immediately. He says, what do these people need most? What do, what do believers need most to navigate the trials of their life? He says, you're going to need wisdom, and you're going to need to ask for it. So let's talk just briefly about what wisdom is and what it's not. It's not a word we necessarily use often and not necessarily a word that we use in, in relationship to each, either, to each other that often. But here's what wisdom is not. It is not simply intelligence, knowledge, or experience. Okay, wisdom might come through all of those things, but none of those things, in fact, equals wisdom or guarantees wisdom. I mean, t- think of your own life. Uh, maybe you're relatively sharp, you have lots of knowledge, you've had some experience, and do you still find yourself in trials? Do you ever f- still find yourself in trials that look an awful lot like ones you faced earlier in life? You know? Uh, experience does not necessarily equal wisdom. I was thinking about this in terms of uh, this kind of grid of intelligence, knowledge, and experience. Uh, Camper and I used to work with a campus ministry at a university in another town, and one of the things that we found is uh, year in and year out, new freshmen would come in, and many would take this uh, a class on an introduction to Christianity. And the professor who teaches that class, who's now in the last 10 years or so become very well-known and renowned, he, um, he is somebody who had intelligence and knowledge and experience. He was an incredibly sharp guy. I've had uh, a lunch conversation with him once. He was incredibly sharp, uh, and he knows a ton. He, his grasp of Greek will be better than I could ever shoot for. He knows more about the New Testament, which is what he taught, than, than most pastors do. Uh, experience. He, he went to a Christian college as an undergrad. He went on to uh, seminary to pursue ordination, and, uh, and it was in seminary that he lost his faith. He decided the Bible was not really reliable, that he didn't have a grid for understanding the information he was getting, and he walked away from it. But tons of experience. And so here is somebody who's intelligent, knowledgeable, and experienced, but in this regard, in this part of this person's life, is he wise? Well, in the way the Bible speaks of wisdom and evaluates wisdom, the the answer is no. See, we can have all those things and not be wise. So what does it mean to be wise? Well... I mentioned this definition before. Bruce Walkie, an Old Testament professor, defines wisdom as this, the art of skillful living. The art of skillful living, of living well, of knowing how to navigate life. And for Bruce Walkie, as he gives this quote, uh, steeped in the Old Testament, that is uh, inseparably intertwined with a life that is in, lived in relationship with God. If you were to look back in your call to worship this morning from Psalm 111, right near the end, it speaks of the fear of the Lord being the beginning of wisdom. Said again in Proverbs 9, verse 10. You see, wisdom, as the Bible looks at it, is this capacity, this learned and growing capacity of living life in God's world as it really is in relationship to Him. It begins with... uh, the fear of the Lord, the looking to the Lord above all, your reverence and, 
and your significance found in, in Him. It begins with Him. And then it's a process then of growing as we look at life and learning how to live along the grain of God's purposes in this world rather than across the grain. You know, God has set up this world and he's made it to work in a certain way and he's in relationship with us. Are we living along that grain or are we at cross purposes to it? Well, living along the grain is what the Bible speaks of as wisdom. And so don't you see, when we define it that way, that we are people desperately in need of wisdom. Desperately in need of knowing what it means to live in light of the reality of God and his purposes for the world. We need wisdom. And James has good news for us that we are eligible for this wisdom. I mean, look what he says, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously, if any of you. He's speaking to God's people. He's speaking to the church. He says, if any of you lack wisdom. Because James knows that for these followers of Jesus... When they first stepped into faith in Christ, they were not given all the wisdom they needed to navigate their lives. He knows that we are continually, even as God's people, always in need of growing in wisdom. So he says, if you are in need of wisdom, if you lack it, ask. Okay, well, how are we going to be the kind of people that even ask for wisdom? Like, where does that even start? I think the Bible's answer for that is that it begins in humility. If you're really going to ask for wisdom, that takes a certain humble admission of the fact that you don't have the wisdom that you need. And that humility works against our pride. You know, this this admission that you don't have what it takes to navigate the trials of your life. This basic distrust of your own knee-jerk reaction to your life. I need something more. I I need wisdom. I need God's wisdom to navigate what he sends my way. Uh... And we're always in need of that. Maybe you remember the, uh, the uh, television show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Remember, you, you get asked all these trivia questions. But if you really get stuck, you get three lifelines, right? Like if, you, if you're just really stuck, there are a few times where you can pick up the phone and call the really smart guy and ask him the question. And some of us treat our lives like that. You know, basically we've got this thing down. Most of the things in our life, we can navigate them just fine. Occasionally, we might hit a point where we've got to use one of those lifelines, and we'll pick up the red phone, and then we'll call God. You know, then I need it. But basically, I've got it down. Well, James tells us we're not in need simply of a few lifelines. We're in need of continual connection to the God who gives wisdom to his people. Now, there's another way we can uh, wrestle with this humility. Maybe it's not this pride of, at the end of the day, I can really do it myself. Maybe what you really want, instead of this humility of having to trust God and look to Him, maybe what you want is just some sort of good, solid program, right? Give me a roadmap. Give me a list of directions that I can whip out of my pocket whenever I hit a situation. I can run down the grid, and by the time I get to number six, I'm going to know the answer for this particular situation, I mean, that's our knee-jerk reaction, many of us, in how we, we uh, read the Bible, for example. Bible, first to last, it's this story of God's work and redemption, but we want to tr- turn it into some sort of, like, indexed guide for pithy sayings that are going to make our day turn out okay, right? If I can just flip to the right page, I'll get the wisdom nugget, and that's all I need. I just need a set of directions. But James says our need for wisdom runs much deeper than that, and certainly he looks to Scripture for wisdom, but he says it's not that's not the way God made Scripture to be. He's He's leading us into a whole life of following Him in faith. We need continual wisdom. Okay, our need for it. Now where are we going to get it? Where are we going to get this wisdom? Verse five. 
any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Okay, no surprise, that's where James immediately goes. If anybody lacks wisdom, go to God. Ask God. Now, there are other things he could have chosen to say. He could have said, if any of you lacks wisdom, if you find yourself not having the wisdom you need for life, here's what you need to do. Just look deep within, and you will find the answer. Get in touch with the deepest part of yourself and let that speak wisely to you. Or he could have said, uh, if any of you lacks wisdom, go to the world around you and look and see what it has to offer. Go shopping and find it. Now, God in his grace, do we find wisdom at work in our lives? Do we find it at work in the world around us? Certainly we do. But what does James say? He says, go to the source of wisdom. He says, go to God. If you lack wisdom, go and ask God. And his uh, encouragement for us to do that, it's rooted in the character of God. Look what he tells us about this God that we are supposed to go to. He says that God loves to give. Do you know that? Do you know that God loves to give his children what they need? And when you come and ask, do you have that expectation that he loves to give, that he is ready to give? Or do you picture this sort of distant God, maybe much like a distant parent you experienced, who is holding it over your head, he's waiting for you to meet the bare minimum before he's going to give you what you really need. Well, look at the way James says it. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously. He gives generously. It's his desire to give. He stands there with open hands, ready to give. Uh, this word generously can also be uh, translated as singly or simply in, in, a, in a focused way. He's, he, wants, he, he is focused on this. He wants to give us what we need. Commentator says this. He says, simplicity is generous in this sense. The simple gift is the pure gift. It neither returns a favor previously given nor expects a favor in return. God's gifts do not become debts. He delights in giving. It is his nature to give without calculating the return. He says God is generous. He wants to give us what we need. But he goes on from there. He says that um, he gives generously to all without reproach. Without reproach. Anybody who asks can come and receive without reproach. In other words, no reminder of, oh, here you are again. Oh, need a little wisdom. You have been foolish again, haven't you? You're asking me for this. Didn't we talk about this last week? Uh-huh. I want you to feel the weight of that for a minute. Okay. Here's a little more wisdom. You ever had, you ever asked, asked for something you needed? There was that subtle manipulation, that holding it over your head, that I'm going to give it, but I'm going to make you really feel the squeeze first. What does James say? Come and ask God, and he gives to all generously without reproach. There's nothing that you have to fear. You might not even be able to fathom what that feels like. Because maybe you've only known giving with reproach. Maybe you've only known that I'll give you this if you give me that way that what we need so often works in this world. But he loves us generously, simply without reproach. That's what it is, and we need it. How are we going to get it? God gives it to us. How are we going to get it? What does James tell us? Verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, 
Let him ask. Let him ask. That's it. Come and ask. Now, in its sort of blazing simplicity, do you realize sometimes it's, it's hard? It's hard to ask. Do you ever have trouble asking for the things you really need? James already goes on to assure us because of God's character, we can feel free to ask. But maybe you know what that's like just sometimes when you just are not sure you want to ask. Uh, I see this with my kids. I'll pick on Henry, our middle child today. He's three and a half. Come stumbling down, you know, the hall in the middle of the night. Sort of disoriented, and he'll say, he'll be standing there looking right at me, and he'll say, I just want someone to come tuck me in. I'm like, what someone would you like to come tuck you in, Henry? Daddy, will you come tuck me in? Yes, Henry. Or in the morning, I want a glass of milk. Our, our new response is, that's great. Thanks for telling us. <laughs> yeah. What are we waiting for? Daddy, can I have a glass of milk? Yes, Henry, you can. Now, why? Am I, am I trying to hold it over his head? Is it because I don't want to give it to him? No, it's because I do want to give it to him. But I want my son to understand this is not some sort of mechanical interaction with the universe, that he is dealing with a person. He's dealing with his father, the one who loves to give to him. And if he doesn't know that, and if he doesn't ask, he's not going to know the warmth and beauty of that relationship. God says to us, come and ask. He's not holding it over our heads. He's inviting us in. Come and ask. Jesus tells a parable about this in, in Luke chapter 11. And it comes right on the heels of Jesus' disciples coming to him and saying, Jesus, teach us how to pray. And that's when Jesus teaches them the Lord's Prayer. Uh, and then right after that in Luke 11, Jesus goes on and tells them this parable. It's his very next thing. He says, Jesus says to them, Which of you has a friend who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I can't give up, get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, and it, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if a son asks for a fish, will get, or asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Okay, Jesus' point in this parable is that the father is not like the guy in the parable. You know, he says, you know, if you go to a friend of yours in the middle of the night and bang on his door long enough, he's going to come down, not because he's your friend, but because he wants you to go away. And he'll give you the stuff, just let me go to sleep. He says, our father is not like that. You know, he says, earthly fathers, you know how to, good give, how to give good gifts to your children. Don't you think your heavenly father knows even better than you do how to give good gifts to his children, he says, knock, and the door will be opened to you. Seek, and you will find. Ask. It'll be given to you. Just ask. That's what James says. Ask. Come to your father and ask. Now, he goes on to say, there's to be a character of our asking, that there's a quality of our asking, maybe would be another way of saying it. Look, look what he says in verse 6. <clears throat> but let him, let him who asks... 
but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So here's James talking about this giving father. But then you read these verses, and, and that might bring, up, might bring up all kinds of objections, two of which I want to kind of hit on right now. And maybe it's this. How could I ever meet this standard? Okay, great. On the one hand, you offer me, just come and ask. On the other hand, you say, but don't you dare doubt it all, or you're not getting anything. Okay, which, which is it? Or who do I know that's got that sort of faith of like, don't doubt, don't ever... Not, like no qualm, like never have this sense of, is God really going to come through for me here? What's James saying? Well, he's saying not that God requires a perfected faith with no hint of hesitation or struggle. He's talking about the big picture of our approach to God. Are we marked by trusting God or is our life marked by trusting God? Or is the basic posture of our soul before God one of deep and settled questioning? You know, the kind that really makes you wonder, you know, on the one hand you say you believe in God, but everything you're doing and everything you're saying and believing really points to the fact that you don't, you don't trust him at all. One commentator puts it this way, James is probably thinking about a strong kind of doubting, a basic division within the believer that brings about wavering and inconsistency of attitude before God. Uh, Paul speaks about, uh, the, about the kind of faith with which we approach God. In Romans 4, he, he talks about Abraham. And in the context of that, he says, you know, Abraham trusted God without wavering. And, and he, he uh, salutes Abraham for this incredibly strong faith. But if you know anything about the life of Abraham, Abraham did all kinds of screwy things. Not the least of which was on two occasions when he feels his life is threatened and he's in the presence of a king. He lets the king think that his wife Sarah is his sister and she gets hauled off to the harem because he's scared that he's going to get killed over the life of his wife. Abraham didn't waver in belief. What? You know, what is Paul's point in Romans is, look. The trajectory of Abraham's life in the hands of God was one of trust. He trusted God's promises, not perfectly, not without mishap, but the orientation of his life was one of bent towards God in trust. And that's exactly what James is talking about here, too. That we would be a people not uh, you know, standing on two logs, bouncing along in the river, but that we would stand on something firm, a trust in God's presence and his goodness, a trust in his care for us, his people that we would trust. He wants us to trust him. Now, the second thing, second kind of objection you might come when you think about this sort of, this statement about doubt, um, and maybe it's this, I feel helpless in the face of my doubts. You ever feel that way? You know, you're just, it's not like you get up in the morning and you go through the day and you think, I, I wonder what I can uncover in the universe today to really rock my faith to its core. You know, things have been sort of dull recently in life. I think I'll have a major faith crisis today. That, this would be good timing for that. You know, nobody thinks that. You don't think that. But what does it feel like when, when you hit times of doubt, whether that comes through trial, whether 